morning. It's good to be with you again today. It's always a privilege. Um, Reminds of a funny story from years ago in our ministry. We had a pastor that helped us get the ministry started, and he would never let me talk to his people when they came down on a mission trip. And finally, one year, so last year, he came down. He, he let me do a devotion with his, his church, and we were sitting at the job site afterwards, and I said, hey, how, how, uh, how nervous were you when I was speaking to your people? He's like, I wasn't nervous at all. He's like, I have a four-hour ride back to Phoenix to fix everything you just told him. <laughs> I don't take the uh, the privilege and honor of the pulpit lightly. It's um, it, it's the job of the elders and the pastor to protect it, and um, it's it's a huge honor to be here this morning. So, if you have your Bibles, Isaiah chapter six. Isaiah six is where our ministry gets its namesake. The I six eight means Isaiah chapter six verse eight, and God had put a burden on our hearts early on to be a sending mission organization to compel. Those of you in the States to come to a foreign land and serve for a short time or give your lives away. And then we're working diligently with the people that we serve in Mexico to raise them up, disciple them, and send them out to faraway places. So this passage is near and dear to our hearts. But it does a couple of things. We're going we're gonna to read through all of chapter 6 of Isaiah. And there, there's a couple of things here. There's one we see the process that the Lord leads Isaiah through. And this is chapter 6 of Isaiah, but it really happened before chapter 1. And if we were to study all of Isaiah, I won't get into all that. It makes sense that it's right here and not chapter 1, but chapter 6. Because in 1 through 5, he asks a whole bunch of questions. And then this is really the Lord's work on Isaiah that prepares him to do a lifetime of faithful ministry. And when we look at the work that the Lord did on Isaiah, we can, we can see two things. One, the process that the Lord led Isaiah through is the process that he leads all of his children through in order to make them believers and children. And then secondly, we can get great encouragement from Isaiah to endure. As I have studied this passage, I'm just astonished by how faithful Isaiah was. He's a major prophet because he's written more than um, any of the other prophets. There's 66 chapters here. And so there's a lot here. He, he's the second most quoted Old Testament book. In the uh, New Testament, he's the most quoted Old, Te uh, prophet, Old Testament prophet by Jesus. So I Isaiah plays a, a big role, in, and, and how did he do that? So to help us um, get our minds set on, on how Isaiah fits into the grand narrative of God's redemptive story, we need to start in Genesis 1. Genesis 1, God created and everything was good, right? And then what happened? Genesis chapter 3. Adam and Eve decided that God, in fact, was not good, that he could not be trusted, and they broke the relationship of humanity with our Creator. And ever since then, we have been born into this brokenness. But God did not give up. If it was you or I or God, we probably would have just blown the whole thing up and maybe started over and forgotten the whole process, but not our God. He does not give up on his people, and he leads into redemption. And he plucks out in Genesis chapter 12 a special people for himself with the man of Abraham. He picks him up from a, a pagan land and, and, and moves him to a faraway place that is unknown to him and says, you will be the father of my people. I am going to create a great nation through you. And you will be my people and I will be your God. And we're going to be in covenant with one another. And if you've read any page of the Old Testament, you realize that we as human beings have dropped the ball on our side of the covenant. There's hardly a page in the Old Testament that, that doesn't show how we fall short of our end. But God does not give up. And he sends prophets all throughout the Old Testament to encourage, exhort, correct, compel his people to return to him. As people were constantly drawn to believe in anything but our good God. And the nation of Israel was constantly looking around at the other nations saying, well, we want to be like them, and we want to serve their gods. And instead of giving up on his people, Isaiah continually sent men to his people and said, will you turn back to the living God who loves you? Turn back, and he will bless you. He will provide peace, and he will provide prosperity, and he will make you a powerful nation for the purpose of all these other nations will then look at you and wonder what is special about you. 
instead of you looking to them and wanting to be like them, they will look to you and be like, how, how did you how did you reach this level of peace and prosperity? And our eyes will, and all attention will be pointed to God. And that was the plan. And so Isaiah is one of these people. Isaiah was sent by God to remind his people to return to the living God, to return to that covenant relationship. And we might think that, man, being a prophet of God would be a pretty cool gig, right? That I'm hearing directly from God himself, and I've been commissioned to go tell God's people, this is going to be great. And if we know anything about the Old Testament, we know that it was not great. It was a very difficult task. It cost Isaiah everything. He was a cousin to king, to the king Uzziah at the time. And he was uh, maybe a priest, we think, because he had access to the temple. So he was a man of great integrity, of great power. He was at the table when decisions for the nation were being made. And so people respected him and honored him, and he had dignity, and he had a high position. And once Isaiah chapter 6 happens, and he receives this call as prophet of God, all that goes away. And he goes from one extreme to the other. History tells us that the people of God hated the message that Isaiah had given him so badly that they not only chased him out of town, the last three years of his life, the only thing he could find to live in was a hollowed-out tree. He was actually commissioned in Isaiah chapter 20 to walk around naked for three years to be an example to the people of God how vulnerable and how foolish they are being. He was working really hard at the hand of God to turn God's people back to God. And history tells us that he was finally cut in half with a wooden saw by the people of God because they were so tired of hearing this message that God had for him to return. So being a prophet was not an easy task. R.C. Sproul sums up what it was like to be an Old Testament prophet. The record of the lives of the prophets reads like a history of martyrs. Their history sounds like a casualty report from the Third Division of World War II. The life expectancy of a prophet was that of a Marine, Marine lieutenant in combat. The prophet's curse was solitude. His home was off in a cave. The desert was his traditional meeting place with God. Nakedness was sometimes his wardrobe, a wooden stock, his necktie. His songs were composed with tears. Everything that R.C. says about a Old Testament prophets was true of Isaiah. And so who would sign up for this gig? Because we're going to read in chapter 6 that Isaiah had a pretty clear inclination that this was going to go really badly. He had no misconceptions about how difficult this was going to be. He actually asked God what it's going to go like, and God's like, it's going to go really bad. There is unlikely ever a day in Isaiah's life where he laid his head down at night and said, I think I made a difference today. But year after year after year after year, he just continued to faithfully proclaim the word of God to the people of God. And he most likely saw no fruit from it. And so what compels us, what compelled Isaiah to continue and endure? And we need this message of endurance. As our culture just continues to spin out of control faster and faster, we were in Salt Lake City recently, and I had an Uber driver, and I was getting to know him, and he was very friendly, and I learned about what we do. He's like, oh, I, I'm a Christian. I love Jesus. And I'm like, oh, man, that's great. I'm like, I'm in Salt Lake. I didn't know anybody loved Jesus in Salt Lake. And he, uh, he said, well, I grew up in the Mormon church. I'm like, okay, now I really want to hear your story. Like, how do, how do you grow up in a Mormon church and, and fall in love with Jesus? Tell me. And so we, we talked a little bit longer, and he started to explain what he believed, that, that Jesus is in all religions. I don't condemn any religions. Jesus can be found anywhere. And, and all of a sudden, the tone changed a little bit. And here was a clear message I received from him. He's like, don't you dare be one of those guys that says Jesus is the only way. To say Jesus is the only way is considered hate speech. And so how do, how do we endure? How do we respond to that when we receive it over and over again? A man very dear to me as a young kid who actually married my wife and I, he was my pastor and had a big influence on my life, came out on social media recently and said, everything I believe to be true, I have aligned basically all my beliefs with the Bible. Like, I'm done. I'm done. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to align my beliefs with the culture now because I'm tired of the tension. 
I'm, I'm tired of the fight. I'm tired of the hatred. I'm tired of being on that side of it. So I'm thrown in the towel. He doesn't say it like that, but that's essentially what happened. You think, man, you, you're in your 70s. You're almost home. Like You're thrown in the towel now. And it, it makes the reality of endurance, the need for endurance, very, very prominent and poignant in our lives, does it not? But the New Testament speaks so much of endurance. Think of the seven letters that uh, Jesus wrote to the churches, the seven churches in Revelation, recorded by John in the book of Revelation. What, how do they all end? But to him who endures, I have great promises in store for you. But to him who endures, the Lord knew that endurance would be a tough gig, right? And so we can learn from Isaiah. Something happened to Isaiah that enabled him to endure faithful to the end. And we want to learn what that is because you and I need that. We want to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. And we need that internal work. We're not going to white knuckle it. We're not going to muster it up. Something has to happen inside of us for us to be able to endure to the end. Jesus tells us it's going to be difficult. I'm going to jump around, just stay planted in Isaiah 6. And uh, if you'd like the other scripture references, I can give them to you. But uh, let me just read them to you. Luke 14, Jesus says, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which one of you, when he wants to build a tower, does not first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it? In Matthew 10, 22, Jesus says, You will be hated by all because of my name, but it is the one who has endured to the end who will be saved. J.C. Ryan, an old pastor from last century, says, It costs something to be a real Christian, according to the Bible. There are enemies to be overcome, battles to be fought, sacrifices to be made, an Egypt to be forsaken, a wilderness to be passed through, a cross to be carried, and a race to be won. Isaiah faithfully endured to the end. And so let's read Isaiah chapter 6, and let's learn what the Lord led him through in order to give him that faithfulness. In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on the throne, lofty and exalted with the train of his robe filling the temple. A seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice of him who called out, while the temple was filling with smoke. Then I said, Woe is me, for I am ruined. Because I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongs. He touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, and your iniquity is taken away, and your sin is forgiven. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then I said, Here am I, send me. He said, go and tell this people, keep on listening, but do not perceive, keep on looking, but do not understand. Render the hearts of this people insensitive, their ears dull, their eyes dim. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and return and be healed. Then I said, Lord, how long? And he answered, until the cities are devastated and without inhabitant. Houses are without people, and the land is utterly desolate. The Lord has removed men far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. Yet there will be a tenth portion in it, and it will again be subject to burning, like a terebinth or an oak, whose stump remains when it is felled, and the, the holy seed is its stump. We pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your words. We thank you for your life that you have given us. You have died so that we may live. And we pray that we could hold on to that and that you would speak to us through the prophet Isaiah and give us the endurance and the transformation and a glimpse of your holiness that we may faithfully endure to the end. In Jesus' name, amen. So we see several things here. The first one is in verse 1. In the year of King Uzziah's death, 
that dates the book for us, which is approximately 700 years before Christ. But Isaiah is really doing something deeper and more profound here. King Uzziah, we learned from Second Chronicles, was a really good king until the last end of his life. And under, he reigned for 52 years. So I'll be 52 next month. So if he reigned during my lifetime, he would be the only king I would have known. It would have been all I, I was accustomed to. And he was a very good king. He turned God's people back to God, and God blessed him. And he had like an engineering mind, and he figured out um, aqueducts so they could do, increase their farming and their livestock. He had a great military, and so the nation was at peace. And so everything that King Uzziah did provided peace and prosperity and power to the people of God. And so this is all many of the people of God knew. And so imagine if we don't have a king here, we have presidents that, that change hands, but imagine if we only knew one king and all we knew from that king was good and peace and prosperity, and then he dies. Would that not be just a bit rattling? Like, who's taking over? What's next? Is the next guy going to be as good as the last guy? Is God going to bless him like he blessed Uzziah? What does this mean for me and my family? What does this mean for us as a nation? It would be a bit undoing. And this is a gift from the Lord. And I would label this a reality check. And what the Lord is doing for Isaiah is removing from Isaiah any false notion of an earthly confidence. Like you don't need to look to the king, you need to look to the king. Do not rest in anything that is on this earth because everything on this earth is temporary. And I like to read a lot of missionary biographies for encouragement and edification. And I can tell you of the many, many biographies I've read, this reality check is an almost is without exception in every testimony of any person used by God. This has to be stripped away from us. Any, any and we don't realize it happens. We have good gifts from the Lord that we are to be grateful for and pleased with and stewarded well. And somewhere without us noticing, they start to grab a hold of our heart and they become the thing that we take confidence in. We begin to trust in the gift instead of the giver. And God wants to, in his goodness, wipe that away. That's true for my wife and I. We both have different stories, but there were um, things that our hearts were, were taking confidence in. And we're not heathen and crazy and rebellious. There were just things that were grabbing a hold of our hearts so that God had to say, don't look to that. Look to me and look to me alone. And this is his kindness and his goodness. So the first step in the process that God leads Isaiah through is just wiping away any confidence other than God himself. And it's a good gift. Is there anything grabbing your heart? Is the Lord laying anything on your heart that's off limits? Okay, God, I'm all yours, but you better not touch. Right? We all have our stuff that, that we love dearly. I would encourage you to trust the Lord with it. He is good. He is never wanting to take something from us without replacing it with something better. He is good, and he is for our good, and he can be trusted. It's a great prayer. God, is there anything grabbing a hold of my heart? Is there anything I'm taking confidence in besides you? Will you please expose that so I can confess it and, and wholly be consecrated to you and you alone? Number two, we'll continue in verse one. I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of his robe filling the temple. Number two, the Lord gives Isaiah a revelation of himself. A picture of God himself. Many times today I'm struck, we hear people that, that supposedly die and get a vision of heaven or whatever, and it's never about God. It's always about themselves. Notice here that God gives Isaiah a vision of himself. And it's a magnificent vision. It, it's all consuming for Isaiah. He sees things. He lists a couple of them. He sees the throne. He sees the train of God's robe filling the temple. He sees the angels that have six wings. He feels things. He feels the thresholds tremble at the voice of God. So he, he's getting this vision, this picture. There's just 
must be all consuming and hard to absorb, something like he's never seen before. And then when the Lord speaks, everything shakes. And so he feels it. And then he also hears. So he sees, he feels, and he hears. And what does he hear? He hears the angels crying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. This holy, holy, holy. And this, this vision, John tells us, Jesus tells us in John 12, 41, the vision that Isaiah sees is Jesus. It is Jesus sitting on his throne. So he gets a glimpse. But the, the key thing here that we need to get and understand that transformed Isaiah deep within was the holiness of God. If you were to describe God in one word, what word would you pick? We'd say, well, he's love, and that, that'd be true, and that'd be right. He is mercy, that'd be true, and it is right. Do you know that the only characteristic of God repeated three times in Scripture is his holiness? His holy, holy, holy. And in Jewish culture, when you repeated something twice, that had great significance. And this is repeated three times. So there's an emphasis, there's a point here that we are to make. Isaiah is completely struck and consumed by the holiness of God. As I said, he was, he was a righteous man. He was, a, he was an upright man. He was a respected man. He was a man that feared God. But now he's getting a clear glimpse of who God is. And this is the thing. This is the thing that allowed Isaiah to endure to the end. Getting a clear picture of God's holiness. I mean, I bet it was just simply a glimpse I want to list out a few characteristics of the significance of God's holiness, and I pray that the Lord would help us let it sink in, and not just in our heart, mind, but into our hearts. Number one, it's the essential defining characteristic of God. It is his holiness. It is the thing that defines him. Number two, it is the anthem of heaven. What are the, what are the angels singing? Holy, holy, holy. 800 years later, John, the apostle, gets a vision of heaven, and guess what those angels are singing? Holy, holy, holy. Guess what the angels in heaven are singing right this second? Holy, holy, holy. Guess what we're going to be singing when we get there? Holy, holy. We're going to, we're going to be just dumbfounded by God's holiness. It's going to be like anything we've ever, ever experienced. So it is the characteristic of God. It is the anthem of the angels. We're going to see that it is the thing that transformed Isaiah's life. Number four. God's holiness is deadly to anything unholy. There are many examples through scripture, but you remember when King David was wanting to take the Ark of the Covenant, is that right? The Ark up to the temple, and it was sitting on an ox, and it started to wobble, and the one guy reached out to touch it. That seems like an honorable right. That's something I would probably do. I don't want the Ark of God to fall under my watch. And what happens? 1 Samuel 6, 19, and the anger of the Lord burned against Uzzah. God struck him down there for his irreverence, and he died there by the ark of God. God's holiness is deadly to anything unholy. Number five, God commands his people to be holy. 1 Peter 1, 14 through 16 says, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance. But like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior, because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. So hopefully I'm building a case for holiness. What is it? What is holiness? Do, do we have a clear understanding of what holiness is? Do we just have a vague notion? And it's like, well, I know it's not holy, but I'm not sure I have a clear grip on what is holy. And so a definition would be really helpful to us. What is holiness? What is holy? And the best definitions are always the simplest. Holy is set apart. It simply means to be set apart. That's actually what church, ecclesia, I think is, is the Greek. It, the definition of ecclesia is a people set apart. A people called out, a separate people, distinct and different than everyone else. So holiness means set apart. Well, set apart from what? First, let's start with God. What is God set apart from? 
absolutely everything. He is in a class all by himself. He has no equal. He does not share his his stature. He does not stare, uh, share his position with anyone. He, he alone is the holy God. We, we can grasp that here, but we, we need to we need to put some meat on that so that we can get it in our hearts, right? Years ago, when we were going out to the mission field, we um, met a man who went to Papua New Guinea as a missionary to unreached people groups. And it took him seven years to learn the language because it was not written down. So he had to do the work of learning the language. And then he had to create an alphabet and create a written uh, language so that he could translate the scriptures, right? And then he had to teach the people whose language it was how to read their own language. And then he had to translate one of the gospels so that he could proclaim the good news. And so all that process took seven years. And there's all kinds of things that were going on during that seven years. And one of the things he learned was a worldview. So here's a tribe in Papua New Guinea, and it's a smaller tribe, maybe 100, 200 people, and they had never traveled more than five miles from the spot they were born. And so that's all they knew was that, was that world. No contact with the outside world. No internet, radio, none of that. that. Any one of the tribes that were near them were considered enemies, so they didn't communicate with them. You know, they, they had nothing but what they knew. And what he learned about their worldview was that they believed that there was a higher power. They believed there were gods. In their opinion, like, like, how dumb do you have to be to not think that there's a higher power? Like, where else does the rain come from? Where do babies come from? Like, how does, how does any of this work if there's not a God? But because they didn't have the scriptures and they didn't have the good news of Jesus Christ, what did they do? They had to decide what this, these gods or God was like. And their God was not set apart. In fact, their God was exactly like them. So everything they wanted, their gods wanted. And so every time they indulged in what they wanted, they were pleasing to their gods. Right? Very convenient. So if, if I like chocolate cake, then God must like chocolate cake. So I'm going to eat 12 chocolate cakes this afternoon as an offering to God. Now, those were not chocolate cake. Those were very wicked, horrific, damaging things. That I don't know how he stomached and we think, boy, those simpletons, those, those Neanderthals, those, how could, how could they be so foolish? But our, do our hearts not do the exact same thing? Do we not approach the scriptures hoping it says what we want it to say? Trying to read into it what we want it to say? I have not talked to my old pastor, but I would, I would bet any amount that there is a, a relationship, someone he loves underneath his reasoning for changing views, right? That there's someone in front of him and he is going to make this say something different because he does not want to say to this person what is actually true. We are people who create God in our own image. And so what's the solution to that? We must, we must come to the scriptures and we must come underneath the scriptures. We read the scriptures, but the scriptures are really intended to read us. They are to define us, and they are to expose us, and they are to conform us into the image of God. We do not conform God into our image. His word conforms us into his image. And so we want to submit to the scriptures as our highest authority. No matter where we go in the world or what language we speak, if we're Christians, it is this that we have in common as our authority. So we want to check, we want to check ourselves and make sure that we are submitting to the truth of God's word and not imposing upon the word of God what we want to be true. Another story that really emphasizes this was that Aniram Judson was a missionary that maybe 200 or so years ago went to India. And India was a very difficult nation, and it had not been um, infiltrated with the gospel of Jesus Christ at all. And so he had to go, and he also had to learn the language. And then he would set up shop in the market area, just a little hut. And he would just say, hey, come have a spiritual conversation with me. Whoever wants to come, let's talk spiritual things. And there was a man that came, and he was a teacher. And a teacher back in that culture was a, a high station in life. So he was a smart man, 
well-educated and highly respected. And this man came to Judson every day, and they would talk almost all through the night, night after night. And this went on for three years. And Judson is starting to get excited because he feels like he's making progress. So imagine being sent to a foreign land seven years in. You have labored hours and days and weeks and months and years with this one man. It's like, the Lord's going to give me some fruit. I can't wait. And then he disappears. And he's gone for a year. And it would be heartbreaking if I was Judson. And you're starting all over. You're looking for the next guy. And you're continuing to press on. But now the teacher returns. And I don't remember why he went away. But he comes back. And they start this routine all over again. Long conversations. Hours and hours. <clears throat> Finally, one day the teacher comes to Judson and said, okay, I'm ready. Judson said, you're ready for what? He's like, I'm ready to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. He's like, okay, well, let me ask you some questions. I think it was me at that point. I'm like, okay, let's go find some water. Like, I want to I get this done. I, I need a victory. But Judson is smart enough and loves this man enough and loves the Lord enough to ask him some questions. And he goes through the list. And then there's one question that he knows he's pretty convinced is going to be a deal killer. And Judson is faithful enough to ask it. He's like, teacher, let me ask you. Do you believe that God the Father sent God the Son to die a horrific death on the cross? Teacher's like, I will never believe that. That that is unacceptable in our culture. That is the most shameful thing you could imagine. And there is no way my heart and my mind could tolerate that kind of injustice. So Judson had to tell him, then I will not baptize you, and you are not a disciple of Christ. You must submit to the word of the Lord, whether you like it and agree with it, and it's acceptable to you or not. You are standing above Scripture telling scripture the way it should work. That, that's not how it works. You must submit yourself to the word of the Lord in order to be a disciple of the Lord. And so time goes by, and thankfully the teacher comes back and he's like, you're right, I confess and I repent. I was imposing my will upon the word of God. God is completely and entirely holy and set apart. He, he determines all the rules. And thank God he's a great God who is for us and for our good. And he can't be trusted. And so the encouragement is to submit to the word of God. And if there are scriptures and texts that, that are hard to swallow, that go against our, our nature, those are the ones we need to dive into and wrestle with and ask for the Lord to show up. Don't run from those. Run into those. And let the Lord do a work on us. So God is wholly set apart from everything. As his people, as, as the Apostle Peter told us, we are to be set apart and holy. What are we to be set apart from? The Bible gives us three categories. First, the flesh. We are to be set apart from our flesh. And the Bible refers to the flesh as the desires that we are born with, just like those those tribal people in Papua New Guinea had desires. We are, to, we are to separate ourselves from those natural desires. And we are to submit ourselves to the Lord. Romans 8, 5 through 8 tells us, For those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who are according to the spirit, the things of the spirit. For the mind set on the flesh is death, but the mind set on the spirit is life and peace. Because the mindset on the flesh is hostile toward God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Just because we're children of God does not mean the desires of the flesh do not rage against us. We must recognize them. We must confess them. We must give brothers and sisters around us to help us be set apart from them, to not give ourselves over to them. When we indulge in the flesh, we are making ourselves enemies of God. We want to repent and we want to return to our Lord and be set apart from the desires of our flesh. Number two, we are to be set apart from the world. It uh, seems simple to say, but, it, but profound and helpful is um, the world has an agenda. The world has a theology. The world has a doctrine. The world has a belief system, and it is absolutely positively contrary to God's. 
agenda, and theology, and doctrine. The world is not a neutral place. The world wants us to win us over to its way of thinking, to its priorities, to its pleasures, to its pursuits. There's a list of things that the world prizes, and they are opposite of the things that the kingdom of God prizes. And so we must recognize what is of the world and what is of the, of the kingdom of God. There's only two kingdoms, the kingdom of this world and the kingdom of God. First John tells us, do not love the world nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. We tend to think, I heard a pastor say recently that if Satan had his way, he would just make life a complete and utter and total living hell. And then, then he would be winning. But Satan's been around a long time, and he knows how to win us over. He is most effective when he can convince us that this world is our home. When we cannot be looking forward to heaven. When we can be resistant to heaven and being resistant. I'm not quite ready for Jesus to come back. If he can convince us that this is our home, he can lull us to sleep and he can draw us away from the love of the Father. That is his greatest ploy, is to get us to set up our own little kingdoms here on earth. I use the example a lot and uh, it seems to resonate. So I'll try it here. We, we stayed in a couple of hotel rooms. You ever stay in a hotel room for one night? When you're staying in a hotel room, have you ever had the thought of going to Home Depot and buying a bunch of supplies and remodeling the hotel room to make it nicer? It's ridiculous, right? We are to think of our time here as a hotel room. We're just pilgrims passing through. When we begin to establish a kingdom here for ourselves, a homestead here for ourselves, it starts to grab a hold of our hearts. And pretty soon we're, we're just thinking more like the world and, and we're getting infiltrated more and more, and our, our lives become less distinct and less set apart. And it's like, oh, I didn't know you were a Christian. That's a terrifying statement for someone to make of us that are in the love of Christ. So we are to be set apart from the flesh, and we are to be set apart from the world. And lastly, we are to be set apart from sin. Sin is not our friend. It works double time convincing us that it is our friend. It makes the most outrageous promises imaginable. But it has one purpose. To steal, kill, and destroy our lives. Sin is not our friend. Romans 5.12 tells us, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all have sinned. We all will continue to wrestle with sin until Jesus comes back or until we go to him. But sin, when we choose to not separate ourselves from the sin in our lives, we are choosing to believe sin and not Jesus. So an act of sin is actually a symptom of not trusting in Jesus. So, so the behavior is not the biggest problem. It's what we believe that behavior will do for us that's the biggest problem. We are to be set apart from sin. We are set to be set apart from the flesh and from the world. And the Lord always gives us something to be set apart from and, and set apart to. So we are to be set apart from the flesh and set apart to the Spirit of God. We, we, we build a wall against the flesh and we submit to the Spirit. We are to be set apart from the world, but set into the kingdom of God. And we are to be set apart from sin and set into Christ. So God's holiness is no light matter. It, it is the characteristic that defines him. It is the anthem of heaven. And it is to define us as his people. Because it defines him, it is to define us. And this is what transformed Isaiah. This glimpse of God's holiness is what allowed him to endure for 66 chapters of torture and die a martyr's death. Everything we've read about him, he remained faithful to the end. 
look at we learn just as much about God's holiness by the description he gave of heaven as we do is how he responded to it. Look at verse 5. This is the, the third step in the process. Woe is me, for I am ruined. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. He is ruined. He is undone. Prophets did two things. They gave blessings and they gave curses. And they gave curses by using the word woe. Woe is me. He's calling a curse upon himself. If Isaiah walked into this church today, we would give him the pulpit, we would make him chair of the elders, and we would give him an enormous amount of responsibility because he was an upright, just, God-fearing man. And so this was no schmo. This was no guy that was rebellious against God. This, this was a guy that we would highly respect. And yet when he gets a glimpse of God, what does he do? He, I mean, you can just almost hear it in his language. He's just shaking. It's like, oh. I'm a man of unclean lips. I have not, I have not responded to you rightly, God. I've been far inadequate and flippant about your holiness. And everybody I know has done the same. All of a sudden, Isaiah's prestige, power, and position meant nothing. His access to kings all of a sudden seemed unimpressive. As a man, he was undone. His noble heritage was exposed as lacking. His integrity gone, his confidence, morality, virtue, decency, ethics, righteousness, honor, all became immediately exposed for what they truly were, entirely insufficient, wholly lacking any power, swagger, or strut in light of God's holiness. We must see ourselves in light of God's holiness. It's pretty natural to compare ourselves to the guy next door who's, in our minds, worse off than we are. But that's not the bar. The bar is God's perfection. And if we, the Bible tells us, if we've sinned once, we're a sinner. And we've all sinned far more than once. And so how does the Lord respond to this? Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongs. He touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, and your iniquity is taken away, and your sin is forgiven. So Isaiah sees God's holiness. He gets a picture clearly of who God is. Now he sees and recognizes himself and who he is. So he gets a right picture of God and a right picture of himself. And all he does is confess that. Holy, 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 woe is me. And what does God do? He sends a mediator to heal Isaiah. And he touches his unclean lips and they're healed. And he's restored. What did Isaiah do? Did he recognize God's holiness and his unholiness and then strive and work and labor to become holy? All he does is confess what is true. And that's literally what confession means, is to agree with God regarding what is true. God, you are holy, and God, I am not. And God immediately sends a mediator to heal Isaiah. We don't have a seraphim and angels come and touch our lips with burning coals. Just like Isaiah, we have a mediator that intercedes for us. And when we call upon the Lord, when we recognize his holiness and our unholiness, the Lord Jesus Christ heals us immediately and makes us a child of God. He clothes us with his righteousness. We don't get to work. We don't fix our situation. All we do is confess with God what God says is true. God, you are holy, and I am not. And there's nothing I can do about it. You save me. I need that mediator. And God is ready. To make that healing, healing immediate. So we see a mediator. We must rest in Christ. We are not sinning. We cannot strive to be holy outside of Christ. Christ. Isaiah, see, 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 see,
This summer, and she said a couple of things in the English like, oh, do so like warning flags for me, and we were talking about it. And um, she wanted to come do something big for God. But when I asked her about the gospel, when I asked her about Jesus, that there was there was something very scary missing in, in steps one through four. And we didn't I said, I'd love to have her down, but we didn't, we didn't have the time to minister to her. We knew we were going to be gone, and we, we didn't want to turn her loose. Not knowing that, that there was something that hadn't happened in her life. So now the Lord can use Isaiah. And what is his response? Here am I. This is not a location that Isaiah is giving the Lord. The Lord knows exactly what Isaiah is. He's saying, Here am I. Like, after all of this that you've just done for me, and all of this that I have seen and experienced, and after the redemption, just Lock, stock, and barrel. Here I am. It's not a location. It's a wholehearted consecration. Whatever you have for me, Lord, I'm in. Just say, I'm saying yes. And we know that to be true in our own story. We got to the point before uh, moving to Mexico, we were reading our Bibles every day at the coffee shop. And at the three-year point, it just became clear to us. We either say yes to whatever the Lord is calling us to do, or we close our Bibles and just go a different direction. And so we had to say yes without knowing what the question was. And as of yet, Isaiah doesn't know what the question is. He just knows that God is calling him to be sent. And it's just, it's really astonishing to me that the Lord gives us the next few verses. And so this is an historical account, but it's also a prophetic account of what's going to happen. If the Lord had told us before we said yes, everything that he had in store for us, it would have certainly caused us to think twice. But thank God, thank God he didn't. Because looking back on it, it has all been for our good. But for Isaiah, he tells him ahead of time how it's going to go. He's going to go talk to people who will listen but not perceive, who will look but not understand. They will be insensitive. They will have dull ears. They will have dim eyes. They will not respond to anything you say. And you can see in Isaiah's response in verse 11, how long, Lord? And I used to think that um, this was because he wanted to see some uh, personal relief from the pain, but I really think it's a heart for his people. Like, these are Isaiah's people. These are his brothers and sisters and countrymen. Like, how long? Please tell me someone's going to listen. I'm pleading for my people, Lord. And then the results that God gives them are, are difficult, like laid waste and devastation, and there's not going to be anybody left. And so in, in order to say yes to that call, there cannot be an ounce of self-glory in our hearts. It's like, okay, Lord, if this is what you, if this is your plan and this is what you have and this glorifies you, then okay, I'm in. I've already said yes, so I'm going to continue to say yes. So it's a relinquishment of all self-glory. Isaiah's concern is not success, but faithfulness. And that's one of the toughest dichotomies when we're wanting to be faithful disciples of Christ. We want to see success. We have to be very careful how we define that. Success is being faithful to whatever God calls us to do and whatever his word calls us to do. Success does not come in, in numbers. Sometimes it does, but that's up to the Lord. We don't get to decide that. So it's our job to be faithful to the Lord. There is encouragement in the last verse, yet there will be a tenth portion in it. 
God is not giving up. God's will to have a people for himself will be fulfilled. It will happen, and it will be the Lord's doing. So what's the application? The world, number one, is in desperate need of some Isaiahs, some men and women who have met with the Lord and say yes without knowing what the question is. Our culture is in need of it. Our churches are in need of it. We must we must look to a, a higher definition, a higher calling than simply the status quo. Men who are transformed by the holiness of God, willing to do whatever he asks. Two things I would say is, is where are you in this, in this process? Don't let pride or embarrassment or shame prevent you from saying, I, I don't know where I'm at in the process. Will you help me? I know your elders and your pastors, they, they want to help. If, if you're uncertain, this text is not meant to cause uncertainty, but to cause assurance. And so bring that to your pastors and your elders and let them walk you through it. There's nothing you must do but confess who God is and confess who you are and receive the mercy of the mediator. I had one more application, but I guess the Lord didn't want me to share it because I have no idea what it was. <laughs> so I'll end it with there. So be encouraged. Be encouraged to endure. Be encouraged that the Lord tells us it's going to be difficult. Like expectations play a big part in our lives. Like don't expect it to be smooth sailing. We, we need the holiness of God to transform our hearts so that we may endure to the end. And may we seek that and confess if it's missing so that we can be pleasing and honoring to him. Will you pray with me? Father God, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for Paradise Springs Community Church and each person that's here. We pray that your spirit would take your word and embed it in us and transform us. May we worship you for who you are in your holiness. In Jesus' name, amen.